Exodus chapter 11. No longer hear the tapping of your fingers on your phone, so I'm going to assume you're there. (laughs) Hear the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt. And in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. (laughs) And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, here it is again stated that you control the hearts of man. The heart of Pharaoh... It's like water in your hands. You control it. And so we do offer ours to you as if you didn't control them anyways. You do. And we ask that you would give us love for you. We ask that you would use your word to give us wisdom from you, obedience to you, and delight in you. For Christ's sake. Amen. What's the largest fault line in America? All right, for the three of you that I've already told this story to, you have to just act like you don't know it. I read this article a couple of months ago and geeked out because it was so interesting, but couldn't figure out how it would ever possibly pertain to a sermon, but it certainly does today. The largest fault line in America. I mean, immediately you're kind of in your head going, well, I know the San Andreas fault. 
I know that one. In fact, that's probably the only one I know. I forget about the one that kind of runs through western South Carolina. Eh, you didn't know that one was there, right? The largest one actually in the continental United States is actually just off the coast of Washington State and Oregon State. It's not San Andreas' fault. That's actually nowhere remotely close. Uh, in fact, you remember earthquakes, they kind of scale exponentially so that a, uh, what is it, a 6.0 is like 10 times as large as a 5.0, a 7.0 is 10 times as big as 6.0, and they get real big. Uh, seismologists have really worked out the math to be able to calculate how big fault lines are, to calculate how much energy they have stored, to calculate how devastating they're going to be. And a seismologist from the University of Oregon, or Oregon State, I think Oregon State, uh, started doing the math on this uh, fault line just off the coast of Oregon and Washington and realized, oh no, this is actually one of the largest fault lines on planet Earth. It has more energy stored in it than almost any other fault line ever recorded. The fault line that caused the Fukushima disaster off of Japan, you know, where the, the nuclear power plant kind of washed away, nothing in comparison to this one. Uh, they actually have done the math to say that if it has a partial break where the, the lane kind of snaps a little bit, it'll be probably in the neighborhood of a 9.3 or a 9.4. If it has a full break, it'll be closer to like a 9.7, one of the largest earthquakes ever recorded in human history. The amazing thing, though, is that where it's located and the way that the land is shaped under the ocean is that if we do have either one of these options take place, the tsunami will hit the west coast of the United States 15 minutes after the earthquake starts. And being that the earthquake's going to be five to six minutes long, you don't really have a whole lot of warning. It's a really interesting article, though, because the guy writing this was very clear in saying, look, this is nothing that humans have done. There's nothing that we can do to keep this from happening. Uh, this earthquake tends to, the fault tends to shift approximately every 243 years. By the way, it's been 375 since it's gone off. But it happens about every 243 years, and we should probably plan accordingly. He's like, the weird thing is this uh, fault line actually hasn't ruptured since Anglos have lived in that part of this continent. Now, we actually have it documented in Japan the last time it went off because they had a tsunami that washed the entire nation away, having no warning. But his argument was really interesting. He's like, look, I'm not saying we have to be alarmists. I'm not saying that we can't occupy uh, the western half of the United States. In fact, actually, the largest volcano on planet Earth is located in the Midwest. <laughs> so there's not really a whole lot of places you can kind of run. His argument was simply, can we just move the children the fire department, the police department, and the power plants above sea level. And by that, I mean the wave that's going to hit is approximately 100 to 150 feet high. So let's at least get the kids, uh, the emergency services, and the power at least 200 feet above sea level. That's all I want. Because disaster is coming. And it's a really interesting article to kind of read because, one, I never studied seismology in that way, which is always an enjoyable thing. But it's really interesting to read a guy whose approach was disaster is coming. Can we just kind of sort out some of the details of how it's going to happen? It's one of those approaches where it's like you kind of wish Pharaoh maybe had had a little bit different sort of interaction with the wrath and the judgment of God. So far in this book of Exodus, we've seen Pharaoh interacting with God, and it's been very much the, hey, yes, I know judgment's in theory coming, and in fact, actually, I've seen it happen over and over and over and over and over again, but I'm going to continue to refuse to believe that it could happen the next time. It would be the equivalent of the guy who's watched the earthquake happen nine times in a row, and is like, man, it won't happen a tenth. Surely it won't happen a tenth. I mean, I know we have all of the data to support that it will, but surely it won't happen a tenth. 
Well, where we pick up in the story is, uh, has to be one of the more uncomfortable conversations in the book yet. I love the kind of little dynamics of chapter 11. Chapter 10 is just finished with the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. And again, this isn't like the kind of darkness where the sun sets early and, oh no, we just get an extended season of maybe the sun doesn't rise for a little bit. That's not this kind of darkness. This kind of darkness is that like tangible, sticky, comprehensive darkness to the point where it even notes that the way you can tell that God's favor is on Israel is that their lamps actually work. Because in Egypt, their lamps don't work. I don't know what darkness like that looks like. In college, I got stuck in a cave for a day, thought I was going to die. I know what darkness is like. I don't know what this kind of darkness is like. You know the one where you, 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 know, you strike the flint to get the fire going and nothing happens, or at least nothing you can see. It's just completely pitch black. Moses and Pharaoh continue their conversation. In verse 25, you have Moses saying, look, we are going to go offer sacrifices to our God. This is the ancient Near Eastern way of saying, hey, by the way, we're leaving, pal. I mean, you're maybe not bought into it yet. I mean, your land's dying, and it's dying really badly. Your, your water source has died at least once. Uh, you've had all of your livestock, not all of them, but all kinds of your livestock die repeatedly over. Your people are uh, dying. Uh, your magicians haven't even been able to show up for a while because they've been so destroyed by these plagues. It's time to let us go. We're going to go worship Yahweh, the living and true God. In 27, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. So he wouldn't let him go. Okay, that's been our reoccurring theme, and we're going to see it happen again at the end of this. And then Pharaoh says to him in verse 28, Get away from me! Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses is like, fine! I'm cool with that arrangement. Fair enough, right? Verse 29, As you say, I will not see your face again. And then the Lord does something a little bit inconvenient. And by inconvenient, I mean this had to have been really awkward. Because as Moses and Aaron are standing there, it's my understanding of the grammar here, uh, that the Lord appears to Moses and Moses only. Gives him an audible conversation. You've got to think again, a little uncomfortable for everybody, right? Pharaoh and Moses have just had this yelling match, right? Pharaoh's like, get out of here. If I see you again, I'll kill you. And Moses is like, fine, I'm okay with that. And then God comes and talks to Moses. Oh, no. You get the impression, I don't think Pharaoh hears it. Yet, one more plague. I mean, nine. Most economically devastating thing in human history. Yeah, that's fine. One more. Oh, and by the way, and after that one, he's going to let you go. At that point, my work will be completed. And when he lets you go, it's not going to be a partial release. It's not going to be a... It's, he's going to let you go completely. Moses, you're going to go. Aaron, you're going to go. The wives are going to go. The children are going to go. The, the nation is departing. In fact, actually take it out and tell the people. Tell the people. I, I love this again. You have to think Moses would have just been a little bit baffled. Take it to the people and tell them to go ask their neighbors for stuff. And tell them to ask their neighbors, not just for stuff, but for their expensive stuff. 
So go tell your next door, you know, go tell your, your people of Israel to go to their next door neighbors and ask them to empty out their 401ks. Ask them to clean out their 401k so that they can be given to the people of Israel. Ask them for their jewelry boxes. Ask them for that, you know, special bit of treasure that they have kind of tucked away in the safe under the bed that everybody likes to act isn't under the bed, but is always under the bed. (laughs) You think, man, what an odd command. Until you get to verse 3, and it's kind of shocking, really. The Lord, displaying yet again his power over the human heart, gave the people of Israel favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Wait, what? So they go for their neighbors, and they start asking them for their 401ks, and they start asking them for their secret uh, stash of uh, wealth. They start asking them for their uh, you know, extra cash laying around for their jewelry boxes. And what does God do? God works in the hearts of the Egyptians, and they're like, you know what? That's a great idea. I like it. I think that's a great idea. And in fact, you didn't even know to ask for this part, but I'll give you that too. You think, man, wow. I mean, what a, that's an amazing thing that God is doing. <laughs> and I like how Moses tells the, the second half of verse three. Moreover, I mean, as if that weren't a stretch. The man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt. So Egypt actually takes a liking to Moses, which is shocking. I mean, remember, this is the guy that used to be an Egyptian and then killed an Egyptian and then ran away. Like everybody would have known who he is. He's not kind of some, you know, nobody. It wouldn't have been, you know, like one of us who's, you know, oh, well, I... Nobody knows who that is. Okay, that's not me. Moses is on the national stage. Like I said, if, if he is, in the time that we think he is, and the Egypt, our kind of timeline is the way that we think it is, the Pharaoh that he's talking to is his step-uncle, and the Pharaoh before him was his stepmother. Like, this guy is of the pedigree of Egypt. But he murdered an Egyptian and took sides with the Israelites. And there's a word for that. It's called a traitor. They tend to not be viewed favorably. I mean, remember you did your study back when you were a kid and learned about Benedict Arnold, right? History is really favorable toward that guy, right? No, not so much. No, we don't, we don't like traitors. But then you think about it even more so, not only is he a traitor to Egypt, but when he returns, suddenly everything starts going bad for the next four months or so. I mean, the Nile turns to blood, and we have plagues of flies and boils. Oh, I hate boils. Boils show up, and all kinds of leprosy, and it's disgusting. And then the locusts, and oh, the locusts. That's so terrible, the fire, the hail. Oh, yeah, by the way, the creepy darkness where you can't even light a fire in your house and see, so your family's confined inside because you don't know if you're going to step outside to an alligator or not. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, out of all the people that you would think would be viewed favorably in the land, a murdering traitor who shows up and brings disaster with him is probably not in the top 10 in the national kind of spotlight for, hey, we like this guy. But yet, 
God is displaying his power. He's displayed his power over the land. He's displayed his power over darkness. He's displayed his power over gnats and biting flies. But now he's displaying his power over the hearts of men and women, boys and girls. Yet again, so that Moses' reputation becomes very great in the land of Egypt. It becomes very great in the sight of Pharaoh's servants. It becomes very great in the sight of the people of Israel. So as Moses is this basically walking personification of death and disaster, everybody loves him. Hey, I like you, man. You're a good guy. I like you. Wait, what? It's interesting who's included in the list. The people of the land of Egypt love him. The servants of Pharaoh's house love him. People of Israel love him. That is interesting. The, the one name that's actually not on here, literally the only name, is Pharaoh himself. And in terms of understanding what God is teaching in this passage, I think it's important that we kind of stop and frame out this first three verses before we get to the kind of climax here in verse 4. Is to understand how shocking, I mean shocking, these verses would be. God promised in middle of Genesis 15, really, that as part of his promise and his working with Abraham, that God's people would be taken out of the land for a season, 400 years, and they would be returned and that blessing would be just unfathomably large. But you still have to think 400 years is a long time to really trust a promise, isn't it? And to think of how many of the Israelites would have been a little bit of, hmm, we'll say maybe gently doubting. To think that, you know, this suffering is so great, this persecution is so great, that surely God isn't at work the way that He said He is. Surely God can't be accomplishing. Surely God can't be doing this out of blessing. It's important for us to see when we look at a passage like this that because our, perspe- our perspective is so small, we're not aware of all of the blessings that God is accomplishing for his people. Right? Our, our perspective is it's so small. It's so short. It's so tiny. Now, I went to college, Covenant College. In fact, there's a lot of us in the room that went to college at Covenant College. Uh, lived on top of a mountain, and a mountain that is box-shaped. Uh, you know, where it's Rock City and C7 states from Rock City or whatever. That's down the mountain from my dorm room. Uh, you could walk out on my balcony, out literally like five feet from my bed, and you could see like five states on a clear day. But after going to school there for many, many years, basically moved to Atlanta and moved into uh, a pine tree forest and was unbelievably claustrophobic. Because after having lived for such a spell where I could see for you know, hundreds of miles on a clear day, I, I couldn't see 500 feet because of the awful, hateful pine trees. I hate pine trees. <laughs> but what a clear uh, kind of reminder of what it means to be human. Our, our ability to see is so limited. 
mean, just think of some of the things that are limiting our ability to see. We, our lifespans are so short. I mean, we get, what, 110 years tops? I mean, that kind of seems like a long time when you're really young. It does not seem like a long time when you're not young. A century flies by. But out of the thousands of years that God has had this planet in place, we live such a short spell. And then when we live for that short spell, we live in one specific place. I mean, think about all the things that you didn't even know existed when you were growing up that the internet has suddenly kind of just ruined for you forever. You know, the things that are happening in Thailand that I never would have known those things are happening in Thailand. It's amazing. I would never have guessed. Things that are happening on the far side of the world, animals and plants that exist in the bottom of the sea, amazing things. Limited by time, limited by place, in many ways even limited by our emotions. <laughs> Think how often we've misread situations because we were too happy or too angry or we just didn't have all of the details, all of the data, and we misread a situation. So we just mistook what took place. Limited by our own frailty, limited by our own sin, our perspective is so small. And I can say from my pastoral tenure, one of those things that I've learned is that the ability to kind of have a large perspective oftentimes diminishes by the amount of pain a person is currently involved in. Whatever reason... Part of what it means to be human, I guess, but the, as our pain increases, <laughs> our perspective tends to shorten. Not always, but it tends to. So that when we're in immeasurably great pain, we, we tend to kind of navel gaze and think in and of, only of ourselves and kind of have to figure out how to process our own little world. And it takes so much energy and so much effort and so much, just it's so exhausting just to function to be ourselves. <coughs> And we miss what God is doing. I mean, think about for those kind of being raised in slavery, and this is terrible, terrible, terrible slavery. How easy it would be to question God's working because you just don't know what's going on. Your perspective is just so limited. You don't know all of the blessings that he's been storing up. You don't know all of the workings that he has been doing. Verses 1 through 3 is just a story of God blessing his people over and over and over again. In the middle of a massive fight with Pharaoh, God gives a specific revelation to Moses, which is mercy. He doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to give his people the knowledge of himself. But then on top of that, that revelation is specifically, look, I'm going to do one more thing, then God's going to let you go. And then on top of that, you should go ask your neighbors for money because they're going to give you everything. Blessing after blessing after blessing. But it's just not seen until that moment. Again, can you imagine being one of the aging Israelites who died maybe the day before this? <laughs> and ho- how hard it would have been for you to, to remember, look, God has promised to bless his people. He's promised to be their provider. He's promised to be their caretaker. He's promised to be their refuge. 
for those of us that are currently in the middle of suffering or pain or difficulty or hurt or heartache. I would lovingly encourage you, be reminded God is at work with blessings that you just don't see yet. Now, in that case, it may just be that some of those blessings wait for you in the life to come. You read biographies, Spurgeon uh, is said to have had uh, the spiritual gift of healing. Uh, That's a different question. I tend to think cessationism, but uh, it was really interesting how Spurgeon would do that. He would go in and pray for people. He'd lay hands on them and pray for people. And a good percentage of the time, like half the time, they would die under his hand. Really awkward, I guess. But then he would sit down with the family and counsel them and say, look, you asked for healing, God gave it. They got perfect healing right there in your midst. They're dead. Okay, maybe we could argue with a little bit of the pastoral emphasis there, but again, some of those blessings we just don't see. Our perspective is too small. Be reminded, God is at work for the good of his saints. He is good for his promises. You may not see it yet, but he's good for his promises. All right, verse 4, we continue into the next phase here as we come to the climax of the story. Moses finished getting his interaction with God. Verse 3 is kind of an interjection. Oh, yeah, by the way, it actually works. The people do this. Verse 4, Moses continues with Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord. Here it is, Pharaoh. About midnight, sometime in the middle of the night. Not exactly. About. You can't even depend on it. You can't even sort that out. God will show up and he will kill the firstborn. Again, that is not simply the firstborn son. He will kill the firstborn. Which, to understand again, it's not maybe quite the same impact or punch that it would have today, where families tend to have one or two children and that's it. And so you're thinking about, you know, the entire nation just immediately disappearing because everybody's firstborn. But in a culture that has a large agrarian emphasis, no electricity, and very few things to do after dark, there would be very many more children in there. But God promises death to the firstborn. In fact, actually, verse 6, he goes to explain as to what that death would be like. It will be a cry, a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor will ever be again. And that's an amazing thing to think about, that there will never again be heartache like there was that night in Egypt. Have you actually watched any of the international news in the last, say, maybe 10 years in Egypt? I mean, how many times have they had coup d'etats? How many times have there been kind of, uh, you know, we had, what was it, the Egyptian spring? National turmoil, national turbulence. In fact, actually, one of the pastors in Charlotte was a missionary in downtown Egypt as that was taking place. His wife was locked in their upstairs apartment for like six months without being able to go outside because if she went outside, they did not think she would make it home. Can you imagine that? Like a two-bedroom apartment for six months without going outside? I think that would be a pretty great cry of turmoil. Nothing like this. Nothing like this. But, again, in contrast, when it comes to talk about God's people, when it comes time to talk about Israel, look, it's going to be so peaceful, so quiet, it's going to be so chill, that even the dogs aren't going to be barking. 
And again, that's not the kind of dogs that we think about today where we are wealthy enough to have these pampered critters inside our houses and call them things like fur babies and let them sleep in our beds and all kinds of terrible things like that. This isn't a time in which dogs would have been much more wild. They would have roamed the streets and they would have fought with each other constantly for food. And when you think about national devastation having settled in, who knows what's happened with these critters? But yet, while Egypt as a nation is wailing, Israel as a nation will be so much at peace, even the stray street dogs will be chilled out. That's pretty impressive contrast. Not only will all the people be so relaxed, but the people will be so relaxed, even the animals, even the wild animals. So that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And then the consequence of that will be your servants are going to come, Pharaoh, they're going to bow down to me and they're going to say, get out. And then you're going to say, get out. And then Moses leaves Pharaoh's presence livid. And just as in that first section we saw how God's accomplishing blessings for his people, we just don't get to see it always because of the perspective. It's such a limited understanding of what God is doing. Likewise, his judgment is at work work the same way. We just don't see it. In fact, actually, that was what kind of partially drew me to this article that I mentioned about this gigantic earthquake and tsunami that's going to hit on the West Coast. The guy is arguing, he's saying, look, the hard part about trying to sell people on this idea is this is an earthquake and a tsunami that has not hit since Anglos lived there. It's trying to get people to believe in a disaster that can be documented to hit once on average of every 243 years, but has never happened in our lifetime or this nation's lifetime. And so, so nobody wants to believe Because our perspective is so small. Remember, Native Americans didn't document tsunamis and earthquakes the same way. Because our perspective is so small, we're inclined to believe that judgment will not happen. It's the counterpoint to the first one. Our perspective is so small, we forget about God's goodness and his blessing, which is prepared for his people. Uh, The flip side is because our perspective is so small, we forget about judgment. And when I say forget about, I'm going to lovingly say we intentionally forget about. We like to try to, I know ostriches don't do it, but we love to mock them for it, put our head in the sand and act like it's not going to happen. To think the judgment will not certainly be real. I mean, certainly God is, he's kind and he's loving and he is. But is he really going to judge the world? might not have caught it, because maybe you don't always pay attention to the order of worship you should. But there's a theme there, wasn't there? Psalm 90 is a psalm about God's judgment that will be poured out on earth. It's just a matter of time. The 243 years isn't complete, so to speak. The hymns we've sung built off of the scriptures, Revelation 19. What a portrait of Jesus in victory pouring out wrath on his enemies.
I love how the larger catechism kind of divvies up the ministry of Jesus and saying one of his great, the great aspects to his ministry is the destruction of the wicked and him being exalted as king and judge over the entire world. God's wrath is certain. One of those other easier ways to kind of think of it and remember it is to never mistake his patience for inability. Never mistake his patience for inactivity. To never mistake his patience for acceptance. And the problem is, is that when we kind of turn our blind eye to the blessings, well, we begin to doubt God's goodness. When we turn a blind eye to God's judgment, we tend to lose the significance of the cross. I mean, we lose the significance of what Jesus has done. Who cares? I mean, is, is Jesus just a great moral teacher, a great moral compass that's come to help me live my best life now? Is Jesus the, the perfect self-help therapist to help me sort out my issues? I mean, we all have issues. We all have baggage. Jesus is the way to fix your baggage. I mean, he is, but that's not it. You see, when we forget about God's wrath, we lose the significance of the cross. We lose the significance of the table. You see, what is laid out here is very clear that there is a distinction between Egypt and Israel in this Passover plague. There is a distinction between those that God will pour his wrath out upon and those that God will show mercy to. And as we've kind of lovingly kind of poked at in Sunday school over the last uh, weeks and such, where it's easy for us to naturally read ourselves as the wrong character in the stories. I mean, most of us want to read ourselves, depending on your ego, either as Moses or as one of the Israelites. But if we're going to be honest, if we're going to be honest, the more faithful reading of our natural condition would be closer to Pharaoh or an average Egyptian that has no idea but hates God anyways. When we think about humanity from that perspective, it, it gives such a fuller understanding to the cross that while we were still sinners and deserved all ten of these plagues and infinitely more, then Christ died for us. And to understand that on that cross, it's not just that he goes to die. I mean, ooh, no. It's on that cross, he takes all of the wrath of God. Please understand, crucifixion is perhaps the most terrible way to die I could possibly conceive of. And it was nothing in comparison to the rest of the suffering. I mean, if we're going to be really kind of crass and tacky in our language, crucifixion was the easiest thing he did on the cross. That was the easy part. 
Because while being crucified, his body suffering and being broken, all of the wrath of God, which we have just a little bit of a glimpse of here in these 10 plagues, all of the wrath of God in its totality for the people of God was poured out upon the Son of God in person. So that there was nothing left. I mean, if we were going to use kind of an object lesson, you remember these plagues, Israel is spared. It would be the equivalent of God pouring out these plagues constantly on everyone and everything, but all of the parts of the plagues that should go to Israel goes to Jesus instead. He takes the wrath of God so that the people of God don't. And in fact, actually, we could even go further to say, it's not just that we don't take the wrath of God, we can't take the wrath of God because it's already been spent. It's already been poured out. It's already been shed. It's already been drunk to the dregs. So that the cross suddenly means a little bit more. You see, this is the good news. And this is also, I think, in some ways, part of why the American church, sometimes we can tend to be a little bit anemic at times. It's because our gospel has sadly been a bit truncated to just God will bless you and help you with your issues and your baggage. And it's missed out that that's not the gospel at all. The gospel is that while we were still sinners, Christ died to satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf. And having satisfied that wrath, there are other blessings that follow. The challenge for us today is that we are called to live as a people who are not forgetful. You think about so much of the Old Testament is remember what God has done. Remember the exodus. Remember the plagues. Remember his faithfulness to you. Remember the past. The challenge for us today in a passage like this is to remember. To remember that God is faithful even when it, he does, it doesn't feel like he is. To remember that God is working for the good of his saints even when it only feels like pain and trouble and sorrow. And to remember that just because we haven't experienced his wrath doesn't mean it's not there. And just because we haven't seen it doesn't mean that it's not coming. And just because we live in the wealthiest nation in human history with the wealthiest neighbors in human history, with the best laws in human history, probably, maybe, maybe not, with the nicest and kindest neighbors in human history, it doesn't mean that they won't suffer too. We're called to be people of remembrance. And you know what? Sometimes that's going to be a little bit inconvenient. Because we live in a world that loves to forget. That's why we have a bajillion dollar industries to help us forget. We call that entertainment today. But it's just an exercise in forgetfulness. It's what can I do? What's the sparkly little thing I can put in front of my face so I don't have to think about who God is and what he's doing? May it be that we, in the table, and in our lives are a people who don't forget. Father in heaven, 
thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus who lived for us and died for us. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would help us remember him always. In his name, amen.